Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... These pathologies emerge in a very predictable way whenever the economy fails to deliver forward progress to people. Ben Friedman on the moral consequences of economic growth. Revisited. Today's guest is economist Benjamin Friedman. Ben is the author of the book, The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth, which is the main topic of our chat today. And he's also got a newly released book out called Religion and the Rise of Capitalism, which we do discuss a bit towards the end of the chat. But I have wanted to revisit the moral consequences of economic growth for some time. It was published back in 2005, and its argument is that strong, positive economic growth has all kinds of societal benefits that go well beyond the obvious material benefits that not only can vigorous economic growth, so in other words, rising incomes, rising living standards, that not only can economic growth make people richer, but also that it contributes to making a country more virtuous, that growth can make people more tolerant of diversity, more committed to fairness and to democracy, that it leads to more social mobility for people born into poor families, and that people in fast-growing economies would also think less in zero-sum terms, that they would be less threatened by the advancement of other people because when a country has fast economic growth, everyone can make progress. This theory is a challenge to how a lot of people think about economic growth. You know, very often people think the exact opposite, really, that worrying too much about material things and having more money contaminates morality rather than contributes to it. The words consumerism or commercialism or late capitalism get thrown around And to that, I would just say here that the book is also quite subtle, and Ben is a subtle thinker, as I think you'll realize in the conversation. He discusses the exceptions to his theory when they occur, and the nuances in how and where his theory applies, and how it interacts with issues like inequality and the environment. And finally, the book's message is actually a tough one to process when you stop to think about it. Because it suggests that even an already rich country by historical standards, like the U.S. now, or the countries of Western Europe or Japan, becomes vulnerable to some terrible social consequences when their economies stagnate. So they cannot become complacent about growth, about keeping that forward momentum going. There is a steady undercurrent of concern and warning in the book. And the specific outcomes that it warned about back in 2005 have sadly proved relevant in the time since it was published, and they are relevant now. With all that said, here is my conversation with economist Ben Friedman. Ben Friedman, welcome to The New Bazaar. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be with you. There is a line in the very first chapter of The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth that I love, which is, quote, the attitude of people towards themselves, toward their fellow citizens, and toward their society as a whole is different when their living standard is rising from when it is stagnant or falling. It is likewise different when they view their prospects and their children's prospects with confidence as opposed to looking ahead with anxiety or even fear. Unquote. And I just want to stop to reflect on this idea that our very morality, our ethics, 
are shaped by the environment around us and by the choices that it offers to us and that that environment is itself shaped by the economy. And I think this is maybe something that people don't reflect on too often because we like to think that our own moral character is based on our own choosing, that it is a very active thing. And it seems like what you're saying here is that it's actually an interplay between the circumstances that surround us and the choices that we have within those circumstances. And so in that way, the economy really does have a profound effect on who we are, on our very natures. And I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, first of all, I think the paragraph that you just quoted is a very nice summary of the hypothesis that I offer in the book. That is my answer to the question of why people, even with material living standards as high as ours, do and are justified in caring about the continued growth of our economy. It's not just about the material living standards themselves. It's the way that it shapes our behavior, our attitudes, our thought processes as individuals. And then because putting us all together creates the society that we inhabit, it's ultimately about the moral character of the society. And I should say, for the benefit of our listeners, in the book, I'm using the word moral in a deliberately 18th century mode. I'm not talking about moral in the sense of who's stealing at the office, about who's shoplifting at the store, about who's abusing what substances. I perfectly well understand and accept that many people use the word moral in that way, but I'm using moral to describe the character of a society as a whole. Things like, do we provide opportunity to those who are not well-born? Are we generous to those who are left behind? Do we care about fairness in the society? Uh, are we tolerant to those who come from backgrounds different from our own? Do we have a commitment to uh, democratic institutions? This is what people like David Hume, for example, or the Frenchman Montesquieu, uh, Englishman John Locke, and in our own country, people like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. In the 18th century, this is what they thought of as moral for a society, and that's the sense in which I'm using the word here. And the whole book is an argument together with evidence from the various sources where I could find it to argue, argue, yes, whether we live in a society that's moving forward in its material dimension is an important driver of whether we think individually and then collectively as a society in ways that people like Jefferson and Locke would have thought of as a moral society. Yeah, and you also write that many of the specific virtues that we praise in others and in ourselves are also the same virtues that contribute to economic growth. So things like hard work, discipline, perseverance, following through on our commitments. And that this connection is not surprising. And I, I just love this. Again, the idea that it is the circumstances that surround us, including our relationship with the economy, that leads us to praise specific characteristics 
and maybe to condemn other characteristics like sloth or laziness or a lack of diligence. And I just think this is such an underappreciated idea and a really fascinating way to understand the economy. What do you think about that? Look, I'm an economist. Economics is a behavioral science, and we're always trying to understand why people do what they do and underlying people's actions, why people think what they think. Now, I don't for a minute want to suggest that everybody in a modern society goes around understanding explicitly the links between certain attitudes and behaviors on one side and whether the economy moves forward and delivers an improving living standard on the other side. But I think at some intuitive level, it's bound to be the case that people understand that certain kinds of behaviors, you mentioned thrift, you mentioned diligence at one's job, certain kinds of behaviors are likely to make the society better able to deliver a strong and even improving standard of living to its citizens and certain kinds of behaviors. And mention uh, sloth, you mention uh, inattention, profligacy. These behaviors impair or impede the economy's ability to serve that function. And to the extent that people value having a higher living standard and want their children to enjoy even an improved living standard after them, over time these attitudes become socialized. And incidentally, some of these attitudes and behaviors function at the societal level as well. Think about corruption. Corruption is, of course, a matter of whether individual people steal or collude, but corruption is also a matter of whether a society as a whole takes steps to prevent it. And that's why we have all of these services that uh, serve business investors in which you can look up the rating of some company and decide whether Senegal or Abu Dhabi or wherever you're thinking of investing has a good or a bad track record against corruption. I think at a certain level, people understand the value of these things. You know, I first read The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth some years ago, and dipping back into it, before our conversation, I was struck by how much I'd forgotten that there was such an undercurrent of worry throughout the book. I had remembered that it was optimistic about the benefits that economic growth could bring, but it was quite concerned about whether we would actually get the kind of strong economic growth that would bring about those benefits. It was a book, if anything, born of the really quite deep economic stagnation that lasted from the mid-1970s until the mid-1990s, and which was interrupted just for a moment in the late 1990s when the economy enjoyed very impressive economic growth, wonderful productivity growth, and which would end up kind of petering out. And you were worried that if that strong economic growth that we had in the years prior to writing the book, so in the late 90s and into the dot-com bust, that if we did not resume that strong economic growth at some point, then all kinds of negative consequences would follow. And for example, you wrote, quote, 
After allowing for higher prices, the average worker in American business in 2004 made 16% less each week than 30-plus years earlier, unquote. That is quite a staggering statistic uh, about the lack of progress in the decades leading up to the time when you were writing the book. And it strikes me that all of that happened even before the great financial crisis of 2008 and 2009 and the terribly sluggish recovery in the aftermath of that crisis. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether you think that your principal concerns in this book actually were realized in quite a negative way, but prescient nonetheless. I wish I could claim more prescience than I can, to be honest with you. If I were rewriting the book today, I would take an even more cautious and concerned tone. You correctly point out that only three years after the book came out, the book was in 05, and just three years later, we had the beginning of what the, m- many people, including me, called the Great Financial Crisis, followed by the largest recession in the United States since the 1930s. I wish I could claim I saw that coming. I absolutely did not. And if I had, I think I would have been even more concerned in the book that I wrote. I might even have changed the title because looking back on it now, I think a better title might have been The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth and Stagnation. Yeah. Because now that I look back on it, I realize that I spend just as much time in the book talking about episodes of economic stagnation as I do economic growth periods. And focusing just here on the United States, you correctly mentioned the period of stagnation that began in the early 1970s and continued for roughly 20 years into the early 1990s. But I also look back even further. The first one that I cover was from the roughly uh, 1880 up until the mid-1890s. And then, of course, there's the interwar period in which after World War I, we had a very halting economy right through the 20s and then on into the depression of the 1930s. And when I looked at the experience of the other major Western democracies as well, Britain, France, Germany, I was just as attentive to the periods of economic stagnation and their consequences as I was to the periods of economic growth and their consequences. So looking back today, I think I probably would have added the words and stagnation uh, to the title. Now, having said that, it turns out that because the book did cover both growth periods and stagnation periods, and because the periods since the book was written uh, have not been stellar for the period of the United States, to say the least, I think there is a lot of implicit prediction there, and alas, some of it has turned out to be true. Yeah, you wrote in the book about some of the uglier societal consequences that arose from the 1970s to the 1990s, and you explicitly link them to the economic stagnation of the period. So, for example, you write that it was no coincidence that nativist anti-immigrant sentiment resurfaced during this time, and that it was also not a coincidence that white supremacist groups became more active in this period. 
Things like more domestic terrorism, church burnings, uh, armed standoffs with law enforcement. There was more activity from private anti-government militias. And these are the kinds of things that, when you think about it, also resurfaced quite prominently in roughly the last 10 to 15 years. They were kind of accompanied by or part of the populist and nationalist backlashes that we've seen in the wake of the great financial crisis of 2008, 2009, and that sluggish economic recovery afterwards. And I'm just curious to know if you would also link those disturbing trends to that economic stagnation. Yes, I certainly do. I think the burden of the book in discussing those issues was to argue that these pathologies, and I'm, I'm very explicit in the book to treat them as pathologies, are predictable. They are the predictable pathologies that emerge whenever the public at large loses its sense of forward emotion of improvement in its material standard of living and loses confidence that that forward progress will resume any time and loses optimism that people's children after them will enjoy improvement in their day. And what I document in the book by looking back on these earlier periods of stagnation like the 1880s and 90s, like the 1920s, people may not be aware, but the 1920s had the not only the most quantitatively restrictive but the most discriminatory anti-immigrant legislation the United States has ever had in our 250 or so year history. And then again in the 1970s and on into the early 1990s, these pathologies emerge in a very predictable way whenever the economy fails to deliver forward progress to people. Now, did I foresee when I published the book in 2005 that these uh, these phenomena like anti-immigrant agitation and white supremacist groups and armed militias and so forth, did I foresee that they would be back within a decade and a half? Well, no, of course I did not. I'm not a fortune teller. But here we are, and we've had this very sluggish period of economic growth. And not only has it been sluggish, and I hope we can bring this into the conversation as well, because of the increasing tendency in our economy to skew the returns of what growth we've had toward people who are already in the top ranks of the income distribution, people right in the middle and up and down the distribution for the most part have enjoyed even less growth than the economy in the aggregate uh, has had. And that was already true at the time that I was writing the book. I probably should have taken more note of it. I, I did talk about it, but I should have emphasized it more. But then right through the recovery, for example, from the great financial crisis, the economy turned around in 2009 and then on into 2010 and 11, 12, right through that period. For about a half a dozen years, the economy in aggregate was growing but to repeat, the fruits of the growth were so skewed toward the top end that people right up and down the income distribution were 
in a position of complete stagnation. And to return to where you started this little bit of conversation, this has led to the predictable pathologies, including anti-immigrant feelings, including white supremacist groups, including various kinds of violence. And I think it's a great shame. And I wouldn't for a minute want to say that Every piece of that is narrowly or deterministically driven by the economy. But after mounting the argument that I did in the book, I think it would be even more foolish to suggest that the economy had nothing to do with it. I think the economy was a very important driver. And later in the book, you do get into the interplay between your theory of economic growth and inequality. And there's any number of things that can lead to rising inequality, including things that can be good for the economy overall, but which are bad for specific groups of people, at least for a time. The obvious examples that I want to ask you about are technological advances, automation, which are great and lead to faster productivity growth and faster economic growth, but which obviously do disrupt the lives of people who lose their jobs to technology and automation. And globalization, I think, falls under this category as well. It has these wonderful benefits overall, but with the same result for the people whose jobs are outsourced, for instance, and for the towns where the available jobs have disappeared. And I'd just love to hear your thoughts on this idea that fast economic growth can have these wonderful moral consequences for a country overall But there can be specific places within that same country where the fruits of that economic growth are not accessible. And then those places end up having the exact opposite experience of the rest of the country of not just suffering from worsening living standards, but also possibly suffering the moral consequences that come with that. One of the tests of a civilized society going back thousands of years has always been the question of what provision is made for those who are not at the top or even in the middle. This is part a matter of opportunity. What kind of opportunities does the society provide for people whose parents or whose aunts and uncles are not already in the top rungs? And then, secondly, talking about opportunity is always uh, fun, but Everybody understands that there will always be some people who, for reasons that are not their own doing, are unable to take advantage of whatever opportunities are provided. And the question then is, what about them? Now, part of the argument in the book, one of the dimensions of the moral society that I emphasize, is that when material living standards overall for people say right in the middle of the distribution and up and down some, are doing well, are moving forward, are advancing. That is the circumstance in which people don't mind making opportunities available for others and don't mind being generous to those who are left behind. Because as I model this in the book, people are already able to derive a sense of satisfaction with themselves and a sense of confidence in their place from realizing that they are moving ahead individually. They are living better than their parents did before them. They are raising their children at a higher standard than they recall growing up in their parents' houses. So they're already deriving a sense of satisfaction 
from this source, and therefore they don't need to protect themselves by worrying that maybe somebody else is catching up with them. By contrast, if people are in a stagnant situation and know it, and they're not getting ahead, and they're worried their children after them are not getting ahead, they're going to be very defensive, and they're going to look for differentiators. You mentioned before the differentiator of who's born here and who's born abroad, but it could be people of a different skin color, could be people of a different race, could be diff- people of a, of, of a different uh, religion, uh, people of a different ethnic background. And in all of these dimensions, history shows that at, that's the point at which people start to discriminate. You mentioned uh, globalization. I think that's a great example of what we're talking about. Every economist knows, and I would hope most citizens know, that free trade is a good thing for the economy as a whole. Nobody believes that free trade is good for every person in the economy. There are some winners and there are some losers. And I think part of the reason we've been having in the last half dozen years or so the movement away from free trade, which I think is terrible for the economy, is that we are now in a period in which, for just the reasons you and I have been talking about, those who are the winners from free trade are unwilling to compensate the losers. I was giving a talk some, uh, oh, just a few years ago, right when President Trump was putting on yet another series of tariffs against I can't remember who or I can't remember what. And the subject, I was giving a talk to a bunch of pretty high-level business people. And this was a meeting in Washington. And everybody at this business meeting was complaining about these protectionist tariff moves. And they were saying, well, who's to blame for that? And I said, you are. And they all sat back in uh, disbelief. And they said, what do you mean we're, what do you mean we're to blame? We write all of these high-flown position papers all the time in our organization. I don't want to name the organization, obviously. Sure. Uh, but, uh, but they say our organization all the time writes all of these wonderful position papers about how free trade is good for the economy. And I said, yes. And then when it comes time to talk about programs by which the people who are losing out in free trade have to be compensated, and that might require some tax revenue, you and your organization are always against the tax, having the tax revenue there to provide the program. And yeah. therefore, you should go away thinking that the reason you're now whining about the tariffs that have been imposed on your industries are your fault. Well, this was a wake-up call to them, but for an economist, this isn't a wake-up call. This is pretty obvious stuff. There are winners and there are... I can't imagine that you were the most popular person in the room when you said that. (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting. I'll have to think some about whether that group has invited me back. (laughs) I I, I can't remember offhand. But the, the point is that being willing to compensate people who lose out, why do they lose out? They could lose out for any of a variety of reasons we've been talking about, willing to compensate and help and be generous to people who lose out is part of what constitutes a moral society 
And my concern is that when the economy loses its forward momentum and people know that they're not advancing in their living standards, then they become much more defensive and unwilling to take that step. You also found that there was a very strong relationship between fast economic growth and political rights and civil liberties. And you did this by looking at a number of countries and then you took their rankings from Freedom House, which rates where countries are on political rights and civil liberties. And then you looked at the average income in those countries. Plus, you also looked at how quickly income had been growing over the previous quarter century, which is, of course, a proxy for economic growth. And overall, it was pretty clear that countries with both higher incomes and faster income growth did do better on civil liberties and political rights. But you were careful to note some prominent exceptions as well. So countries like Kuwait, Singapore, United Arab Emirates. And this leads me into my next question, perhaps the most important exception, which is, of course, China, which even back then when you were writing the book had very fast economic growth, but scored terribly on rights and liberties. But you were hopeful. You were hopeful that if China continued growing its economy at a very fast pace, that maybe it would also begin doing better on rights and freedoms and democracy and so on. But if anything, China seems to have gone backwards on all those fronts, especially in the last decade. And I'm kind of curious to know what your thoughts are on what's happened in China, certainly in the time since it's been led by Xi Jinping and how that might complicate this part of the book. To begin, you're absolutely right. I was more optimistic about China in the book than the last 15 years have warranted. I'm not a China expert, but by coincidence, China is a country I know reasonably well. I first started going to China in 1982. I guess that's exactly 40 years ago. That was only four years after the Deng Xiaoping reforms started the country on its path toward economic prosperity. And so I've seen a lot of change in China. As of 2005, when the book came out, I was exactly, as you said, optimistic that if the Chinese were able to keep the growth going and keep this wonderful increase in the standard of living, not just of the people at the top, but right up and down the society, moving forward, I was optimistic that in time, the Chinese would move toward more of what we would think of as a liberal with a small l democracy with a small d. And I think I was careful to say that didn't mean their liberal democracy would look like our liberal democracy, but I was optimistic they would move recognizably in that direction. Now, here we are, what, 17 years later, and I agree, I'm sorry to say, with what you just said. I think, if anything, China has moved in the opposite direction under Mr. Xi. There is certainly no evidence that I can see of movement in the direction in which I was predicting. And there are two approaches one can take. One would can simply say, be to say, well, I was wrong. And now let's puzzle over just why that's true. I'm guessing you'd probably have to be more of a China specialist than I am to undertake that investigation in a serious way. 
And the other possibility is to say, well, it's just too soon to tell. I'm reminded of the conversation. I think it was between George Kennan and Joe and Lai. And at one point, Professor Kennan uh, asked Joe what he thought of the French Revolution. And Joe thought a minute and said, it's too early to say. Well, I think we, we may be in the same situation. We assume Mr. Xi isn't going to live forever. We don't know what's going to follow him. I think the Chinese case is very interesting in a variety of other ways as well. Because the, the country is a military dictatorship imposed by the Communist Party, people sometimes make the mistake of thinking the Chinese have a communist economy. They don't. They moved away from that under Deng Xiaoping 40 years ago. What they have is very much a capitalist economy, but it is not our form of capitalism. It's a very distinct form of capitalism. And I think over a period of time, it's going to be very interesting to see how their capitalism performs compared to ours and what the upshots of it are. I'm old enough that when I was first taking economics as a freshman in college, one of the subjects that was covered on the reading list was whether we should think capitalism, American style, was going to outperform centrally planned economies, Soviet style. Now, today, we look back and even posing the question is laughable. History answered that question. Well, I think in time, history is going to answer the question of which form of capitalism is going to perform better, ours or the Chinese. But I think it's a little soon to say yet, and we may not be able to say within my lifetime. You also investigated the idea that there could be vicious cycles where a collapse in economic growth would also lead to a collapse in basic human freedoms and democratic rights and so forth, and that those in turn would lead to even worse economic stagnation. You looked at that, and then you also looked at the possibility that there could be virtuous circles, which is essentially that process in reverse, where perhaps more economic growth would lead to an expansion of freedoms, which in turn would lead to more economic growth. And what you found, and this was, I think, a little bit of a sad conclusion, was that a vicious cycle was something more easily achieved than a virtuous circle. And it implied that this relationship between economic growth and all of these virtues leading to an upward spiral was a very fragile thing, but that it was much easier for the economy and for society to break down. Uh, do you want to just give us a sense of uh, that relationship and whether you still feel the same way? I do. The book that I wrote is about the consequences, the effects of economic growth for the society. But there is much written by other people on the role of the society, aspects of the society, in driving an economy to be productive or not. Uh, I didn't choose to write about that except for a chapter or two. And the reason I included those uh, couple of chapters was precisely, as you say, to be able to recognize that if a good economy leads to good things happening in the moral character of the society, 
and a positive moral character of a society in turn leads the economy to do better, then we have the makings of a classic virtuous circle, as I called it, not my original word. Other people have called it that. And conversely, if a bad economy leads the society to move away from democratic institutions, leads the society to limit opportunity, leads the society to discriminate against people who might be able to contribute if they were in productive jobs but preclude them from being there, then uh, we have the possibility of a vicious circle. And what's partly true is that it's easier to fall into a vicious circle than uh, a virtuous circle. But what's especially true is that once an economy and a society is in a vicious circle, then it's very difficult to break out of it. Think, for example, about what was happening in the period after World War I. We had this very halting, irregular growth in the 1920s and then followed by the Great Depression of the 1930s. In the meanwhile, we mentioned before the anti-immigrant agitation and legislation. We had the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, incidentally not just in the South but in all sorts of Midwestern states as well, right up to Michigan. We had all sorts of not good things happening in the American society. Now, an interesting question would be, would we ever have broken out of that vicious circle if it had not been for the mobilization of World War II? I don't have an answer to that question. It's clear that World War II is what did it. But until the World War II mobilization, starting in 1940 and then accelerating in 41 and especially in 42 after Pearl Harbor, it's, it isn't clear we were breaking out of that. To pick another example, I mentioned before that there was this protracted period of economic stagnation and again with lots of pathologies, the predictable pathologies emerging in the society beginning around 1880 and running into the mid-1890s. What broke the world out of that? It was the gold finds. Uh, people found gold in the Klondike and the Yukon and at the same time, new technology, namely the cyanide process, made the gold mines in South Africa much more productive. And as a result, the economy all of a sudden in the latter half of the 1890s started to move forward. And then that period of very rapid, sustained growth continued right up until World War I. So in looking back at these historical episodes, it typically takes some kind of catalyst to get an economy and a society out of what you and I are both characterizing as a vicious cycle in this regard. And since you never know whether where one of those catalysts is going to come from, it's not a good idea to have to rely on one. Yeah. And I have a question about kinds of economic growth, or rather the drivers of economic growth and how they might apply to this theory. And specifically, I'm thinking of the very rapid commodities-driven growth in the 2000s in a number of emerging markets. And you can think of Venezuela or Russia, for example, where the commodity cycle, where these countries could export for very high prices 
uh, the commodities in which they specialized did lead to very fast economic growth. But that growth in turn was also used almost as an excuse to put in place really bad macroeconomic policies. So just to use the example of Venezuela, it did experience in the mid-2000s very strong economic growth. But this was a time when it was being run by Hugo Chavez. And what Chavez effectively did was not just to redistribute massive amounts of money, way more than was sustainable, but also to nationalize a number of key economic sectors and rendering them not just inefficient, but in some cases just outright unworkable, dysfunctional. And so later on in the mid-2000s, a number of these economies experienced brutal recessions when the commodities supercycle had effectively reversed itself. And so it seems like it's not just that there's strong economic growth, but that there has to be a role for the kinds of macroeconomic policies that make that growth sustainable over the long run and even, I would say, the very long run. Because some of these economies did well for almost a decade, but that growth ended up reversing itself. And I'm, I'm just kind of curious to get your thoughts on how to relate your theory of the virtues of economic growth to the kinds of drivers of that growth. I would phrase it slightly differently than you did. Mm -hmm. uh, the way I approached it in the book was to ask, are there kinds of economic growth that do not serve the function that I was looking at? And my answer was yes. Economic growth that consists largely of pulling minerals out of the ground doesn't seem to have this function. And therefore, if you look at the Arab oil-producing countries, there's not been a lot of movement toward democracy. The Soviet Union is another perfect example. I hadn't thought much about Venezuela. I've never been to the country. I don't know much about it. But what you said sounds right to me. This is the basis on which I chose to be optimistic about China but pessimistic about Russia. In China, the economic growth was driven by people doing things, people making things, people having factories, the ordinary kind of economic activity in which millions, and in the case of China, hundreds of millions of citizens were involved. By contrast, in Russia, the new form of wealth creation was primarily from pulling minerals out of the ground, uh, in the first instance, oil, uh, secondly, gold, in third place, uranium. And looking across the experience of the world, it seems to be the case that mineral production just doesn't uh, satisfy this condition. And I w I'm deliberately putting it in terms of minerals rather than commodities because Minerals don't take a lot of uh, labor. Uh, minerals come from a situation in which the wealth accrues to whoever owns the land under which the minerals are located. Think, for example, of all of those areas in India that are devoted to tea plantations, for example. Tea's a commodity, I suppose, but there are lots of people who are getting paid to pick the tea, to process the tea, to package the tea, on, on and on. And that's true also for many other societies, whether the commodity we're looking at is cocoa or uh, soybeans, whatever. What seems to be the exception 
is the minerals. And as I said, I, I think the reason is that the wealth produced by uh, mineral extraction just goes largely to whoever owns the ground underneath which the minerals are located, and that just doesn't do the job. My last question on the moral consequences of economic growth before we turn to religion and the rise of capitalism has to do with the environment. And you include a long chapter about the relationship between economic growth and the environment. And I got to say, when I'm asked about the virtues of economic growth, this is probably the topic that comes up the most. The idea that there's a relationship between strong economic growth and environmental degradation. And in your in your chapter, you focus both on resource depletion, so using up the natural resources in the environment, and also on CO2 emissions. And I'm kind of curious to know what you think about that relationship and, and perhaps if your if your thoughts on the environment and economic growth have evolved in the time since you wrote the book. You correctly point to what I think is the salient phenomenon, and that is that a willingness to forego some material gain to one's person or family in order to protect the environment from damage is, in my view, very much like the willingness to forego some personal gain in order to let people with a different skin color move ahead in society or let people who are born into the bottom part of the income distribution have opportunities that otherwise might go to your children or mine. I think of it as all part of the willingness of people to look past the narrowest, most immediate dimensions of economic gain to themselves and their families. And to me, it all goes together. And therefore, it is not any surprise to me that in places like the United States, we are more willing to undertake things like pollution control than there are in other societies. I mentioned before that China has the worst pollution I've uh, ever experienced. A close second I've experienced is India, another country I've visited a number of times. The problem is, isn't that the Indians have all that pollution because they're too rich. The Indians have all that pollution because they're too poor. If the Indians had a standard of living like ours, they would, like our us, require catalytic converters on the tailpipes of their cars. Well, there's a reason we don't. It costs money to put that there, and they can't afford it. We can afford it. So I think the pollution example is one that clearly makes the point. Now, global warming is more complicated and the reason is summed up in the word global. If we're trying to deal with the problem of people littering on the streets, any city is capable of dealing with that on its own. If we're trying to deal with pollution, sometimes cities are able to deal with that problem. Sometimes it takes larger geographical entities like states, or sometimes it takes regional 
compact. So places like New York are downwind of all those manufacturing plants in Ohio and Michigan, and therefore you have to have something regional. Well, now we're talking about global warming in which, to be explicit, it doesn't make any difference whatsoever whether the gases are released into the air in the United States or in Australia or in New Zealand or in Brazil or in some country in sub-Saharan Africa. By the time it gets up into the atmosphere, it's all the same thing. So we have to have some kind of global agreement in order to attack the problem. And I think everybody knows that our world is not very good on global agreements. There have been a few successful examples. The law of the seas is a good one. Uh, We're not doing all that badly on protecting rare species and so forth. But I think this is a really hard one. I am not surprised that as the United States, in the wake of the great financial crisis of 2008, 9, 10, and then the great recession that followed and the economic stagnation after that, I am not surprised that the willingness of the American public to participate in efforts to combat climate change is weakened compared to what it was a dozen or so years ago, 15 years ago. To me, this is, again, part of the predictable pathology that goes with economic stagnation. And I would hope that once we get the coronavirus behind us, if we can mount sustained economic growth and if that growth can be widely shared among the population, then we can return to a more supportive climate, to use that word, for uh, protecting climate integrity. Uh, But we're not there. We're not there. We're still in the quite immediate aftermath of the stagnation and then the uh, economic costs of the virus. And so I think we've got some distance to go. Well, that was The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth. And we're going to turn to your new book, which could have been titled the consequences for economics of religious thinking. Um, But the actual title is Religion and the Rise of Capitalism. And here I want to just quote you again from the beginning of the book. You write, quote, the creators of modern economics lived at a time when religion was both more pervasive and more central than anything we know in today's Western world. And crucially, intellectual life was more integrated then, unquote. What did you mean by that? The main hypothesis that I offer in the book is that the origins of what we now have as modern Western economics, what we think of as the product of Adam Smith and David Hume and that wonderful group of thinkers in the 18th century, was powerfully influenced not just by the Enlightenment, not just by the Newtonian revolution in science, all that is familiar, but by a further influence that people have ignored. And that is the trend of new and highly contentious ideas in the religious thinking of the English-speaking Protestant world. It turns out that Smith and Hume lived at a time when theology was under a great 
revolution throughout the English-speaking Protestant world. And then one has to ask, why did that matter for their thinking? Could it have been because these were religiously committed individuals who were self-consciously trying to bring their religious commitments to bear on their professional writings? And we have to dismiss that idea right from the outset. These men were international celebrities in their own lifetime, and so we know a lot about them biographically. It would be completely absurd to call Hume, for example, a religiously committed person. He was probably an atheist. The exact opposite, really. He was was, aggressively against religion. He was aggressively against any form of organized religion. Organized religion, correct. There there continues to be a debate over whether he was an atheist or an agnostic. I personally think he was an atheist, but there are people who come out on the other side. Smith was more private about his personal religious commitments, but there is no evidence, none whatsoever, of Smith having deep religious commitments. So there has to be some other story. And my story centers around this concept that I associate with Einstein, although no doubt other people have had it as well, the story of the worldview. Einstein famously wrote that the world around us is just so complicated that we can't try to analyze the world as it is, what we do is form in our minds a worldview, a simplified worldview, as a way of cutting through the complexity of the world, and therefore the world as it is, and therefore it's important to figure out what is driving people's worldview. And that's where I think the statement from the book that you quoted comes into play. No, Smith and Hume were not religiously committed individuals, but religion was at work all around them. Religion was the main source of patronage in Scotland right before Hume was born, and so that's about 15 years before Smith was born. Scotland had given up its status as a independent country. It had entered into the Act of Union with England and Wales. So they had no independent parliament. They had no independent royal court. And patronage was a matter of the church and universities, which were all at that time very deeply religiously oriented. And moreover, you quoted uh, the part about religious life being more integrated then. And I think that's absolutely true. When Smith taught at the University of Glasgow, There were only 14 people on the faculty who had the word professor in their title. Smith was the professor of moral philosophy. And right there, of the other 13, one was the professor of theology and one was the professor of church history. And so every time the faculty met, the 14 of them, to talk about anything intellectual or curricular, Smith was right there with these other people. And similarly, the Scottish Enlightenment was famous for its dining societies and conversation and debate clubs. Not surprisingly, Smith and Hume both belonged to the most prestigious of these, something called the Select Society. They were two among the 31 original members of the Select Society. And of those 31 members, five 
were Church of Scotland ministers. Mm. But that's the way intellectual life was oriented in those days. And so for the reasons that I explain that have to do not just with the society, but with the substantive connections between these new ideas in religious thinking and the economics that Smith created, I think the worldview, again using Einstein's concept, the worldview that he had in his mind when he sat down to do his economics was very much influenced by these new and hotly contended ideas in the religion of the English-speaking Protestant world. Yeah, and to flesh that out just a bit, the deep background of this book is that economic thinking or capitalist thinking was inspired by a series of debates that were taking place within the Protestant world, or you might call them schisms, I guess. And specifically that on the one side, there were the ideas of John Calvin and predestination, the idea that God chooses who will be saved. And then on the other side, There were religious thinkers who protested that idea, and they emphasized the importance of human choice. And so, yes, Adam Smith and David Hume and maybe the other thinkers of the Enlightenment were more secular thinkers, but their thinking was still inspired by that earlier debate. Is that about right? Well, first of all, let me, for the benefit of listeners who are I'm guessing I am not the only person listening who was not raised in a Presbyterian Sunday school. So for benefit (laughs) of other people, let me just elaborate one thing that you said that was correct but incomplete. Calvin's idea, yes, was that God chooses who is saved and who is not. That's correct. But the powerful point is that the choice that God makes in this regard, according to Calvin, is not influenced at all by any thought that you may have, any action that you may take, any decision that you may make. All of this choice on God's part, according to Calvin, was made not only before you were born, but before the world was even created. So there is no room whatsoever for human thought, human choice, human action, human agency to have any influence uh, whatsoever. That's the powerful point. It's not just that it's God choosing. Uh, Calvin was very sharp and very explicit on this point. Uh, It has nothing whatever to do with human merit. And I argue that it was the movement away from predestinarian Calvinism that opened the way for a more optimistic and benign view of the human character and opened the way for a more expansive view of the opportunities for human choice, human action, human agency that enabled Smith and his followers to come to the conclusions that they did. And incidentally, the book is not entirely about the 18th century after we get to 1790 and Smith dies. Then the book shifts to the United States and the movement away from predestinarian Calvinism was at its height in America, not until the latter half of the 18th century. And incidentally, many people have argued that this was very influential for purposes of the creation of our republic, that 
people like Jefferson and Washington and Madison were also influenced by the movement away from predestinarian Calvinism. And I'm there showing that this influence, this from-the-ground-up influence of religious thinking on modern economic thinking persisted, especially in the United States, right down through the 19th and the 20th centuries, even as the economy changed. And of course, the questions that economists asked changed. Well, there's centuries of intellectual history in the book, uh, but we're just about out of time. So my final question is just this. What has surprised you the most about your research into religion and the economy as you were writing this book? I would say two things. First, uh, the role of religious thinking in influencing the thought process of the people who gave us modern Western economics is quite directly counter to the usual view of such things. Uh, The book is meant to be a challenge to received wisdom, and I did not come equipped at the beginning with that challenge. I formed this idea slowly as I looked and learned and uh, read about it. What do you mean by that? In, in what way was it a challenge to, to the perceived wisdom? The standard view is that modern Western economics is a product of the Enlightenment, true enough, But then we normally think of the Enlightenment as a movement away from thinking in terms of a God-centered universe toward what we in our modern vocabulary would call secular humanism. That's the standard view. Well, I'm arguing in my book that that part of the conventional wisdom is wrong. And it doesn't mean the Newtonian revolution in science wasn't influential. It was. It doesn't mean that the other parts of the Enlightenment weren't influential. They were. But in addition to those aspects of the intellectual climate that everybody takes on board, I'm arguing that there was this additional element which nobody takes on board. Once I figured this out, this came to me as a surprise. The second thing I would mention is that I had not realized the theological origins of much of the debate that we have in the United States today over so many elements of our economic policy and our economics more generally ask why is it that so many people who have low incomes and live in low-income states and themselves draw on programs like food stamps, like supplemental income support, like public housing, why is it that so many of these people vote in favor of candidates who would like to eliminate those programs? This is a real puzzle. And the puzzle, of course, has not escaped the attention of our political science colleagues. And in the book, I explain what the standard political science view of the puzzle is. But the standard political science view leaves no room for religion. And what I show in the book using polling data is that these kinds of political views, including among people of low income, are very highly correlated with people's religious views, 
in a way that connects up to many of the theological ideas that I discuss in the book. And I don't think I would have expected that. I knew, of course, that American Protestant evangelicals disproportionately vote Republican. I think everybody knows that. But I had not understood the uh, theological underpinnings of many of these evangelical denominations that help provide an explanation for that. So once I figured that out, and I talk about this also toward the end of the book, I would say that was a second surprise to me. Ben Friedman, this has been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for being on The New Bazaar. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed the conversation. And that's our show for this week. We will post links to Ben Friedman's 2005 book, The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth, and to his new book, Religion in the Rise of Capitalism, in the show notes for this episode. Both books are highly recommended. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you like today's show, please leave us a review or tell a friend. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. And we'll see you next week.